Hey, save an egg for Jack, okay? Well, the good news is actually that you've already had the sermon in a nutshell, or an eggshell, so to speak. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16. And if you have your Bible, then it's going to be particularly helpful to you this morning. But if not, it's printed in your bulletin this morning. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This morning, it is particularly helpful if you have a Bible this morning, but if you just have your program, let me tell you something that's going on in scholars who have looked very closely at the Gospel of Mark and the original manuscripts. If you have a Bible, you'll notice that, as in mine, there's a parenthetical statement in between verse 8 and then the remainder of the chapter. And it says that the very earliest manuscripts do not have the remainder of the chapter. In other words, the very earliest manuscript authored by Mark when he wrote the Gospel of Mark ended at verse 8. Now, that created a tension because it ends with these words. They went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The last words of Mark's gospel is, they said nothing to anyone, they were afraid. And it ends right there. Now, other scholars came along and they came to this conclusion. Either Mark really intended to end at verse 8, or there's a part of the scroll, there's a part of the manuscript that is lost. And so they filled it in. They filled it in with verse 9 through 13, which tells us what the other Gospels tell us very succinctly is they went to Galilee, they told the disciples, 
the disciples didn't believe them. Others went to the disciples who were hidden in the room. And then finally Christ came to them and said, why didn't you believe the women? Why didn't you believe the men? And then he spoke to them. And then another addition was made that talks about, as it were, the great commission of carrying the gospel throughout all the world and being able to handle serpents and not be, uh, not be poisoned when they bite you, being able to drink poison and not die. And uh, if you take a vacation in West Virginia, then maybe you can uh, tour one of these churches that still really believes in this passage and the power of this passage. But this morning, I have concluded that Mark ends at verse 8. I trust the scholarship that says the most reliable manuscripts do not verse 9 to the end. Now, what's the point? The point is, is that Mark's gospel ends with women who are so afraid that there's a question as to whether or not they will follow this angelic messenger in the tomb, whether they will actually go and say that Jesus Christ has risen and is risen indeed. It hangs on whether or not. There's a question mark. When Mark's gospel ends, we see these women huddled in fear and astonishment not going to Galilee. And we don't know, will they go, will they not go? We have the benefit of the other Gospels. But if you were an early Christian, not having the benefit of the other Gospels, you would look at this and you would wonder, would they obey? Did they ever obey? Why wouldn't they obey? Mark's Gospel, something else look, and again, you would need your own scriptures, but let me uh, turn to the first chapter of Mark. The very first words, Mark 1, verse 1, the very opening of the Gospel of Mark says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Every Jewish man, woman, and child who had been schooled with the Old Testament and Holy Torah that when the resurrection occurred, that it was a sign of the end. That end times had begun. And so what Mark is now doing by ending, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he ends the gospel with an empty tomb and the word not yet going out, he's saying like Winston Churchill said at a turning point in World War II, he said, this is not beginning, and this is not the end, but it is the end of the beginning. In other words, everything is now changed. Everything that we began as disciples following Jesus Christ, we began to learn of his ways, we began to, to learn about the ways of the Father, but now following the resurrection, then that means we too, as disciples, upon our death, will be resurrected. Paul and other writers, and you will see this, and now I'll end the history lesson, but Paul, and particularly Peter, who we believe to be the, the ghost writer, as it were, behind Mark, they had a particular emphasis in their writing that they were in the last days. They believed that upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there would be more and more and more resurrections until the great resurrection because that was the promised end of all time.
So with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we enter into the last days. Now, I'm not, you know, if I want to fill the church and have a probably, you know, put up big banners, you know, last days ministry, and, and I'll set a date. We don't know, but we do know that it is the end of the beginning, that we are now in the last chapters because Christ has come. That was the first chapter. He lived. That was the second chapter. He died. That was the third chapter. And when he rose again, it's a whole new section of the book. So we're particularly interested in these women. But they represent us in a very, very real way. Now, for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to be able to fully explore all the characters of these three women. I just ask one favor from you. I ask this morning that for your own benefit, even as I found myself doing this last week, find out your identity. Find out how your character most gravitates or identifies with one of these three women. Whether it's Mary Magdala, whether it's Mary the mother of James and the wife of Clopas, or whether it's Salome, that you might find where you most identify with these women and where you find that you might most positively identify with them, then you might find where you're most apt to negatively struggle in your own faith and yet the rich reward that Christ gives to us and even his own appearing to us again and again that our faith might be strengthened. So without further ado, if you have an outline, I want you to look there with me. Everything does, everything does hang on this question. I got a call last night from a former member of a congregation. I, you know, that's one of my privileges as a pastor is, is on special, like Christmas Eve and, and Easter Eve, I have members that, old members as it were, that call me and say, Pastor, I just am praying for your services tomorrow and wish I was with you and God bless you. Well, I got a call from one of those friends last night and he said, I'm calling this year to ask a favor of you. And I said, well, what is it? He says, well, my son tomorrow uh, is going to go and he's going to be sworn in to the Marine Corps. And he says, you know, we're at a time of war. And he said, I'm an old serviceman, but they do it a lot different now. And I was told that I can be with him up to the swearing in. And then right after that, all of his personal effects, he has to put into a, a box, and that box is entrusted to me. And he says, I want you to pray about that. He said, it'll be a very moving time for my son. And I said, sure, John, sure. What, what particularly do you want me to pray? And he says, well, when he puts his things, his personal effects, into that box, having sworn an, an oath of allegiance to the Marine Corps. And he, and he puts everything of his identity and civilian life into that box. And he prepares to give me the box that he won't say, I want to go home, I want to come back and forget it. He says, I want him in the service. I want him to go. I don't want him, as he's putting everything that he's got into this box, to say, you know what? Uh, count me out. The allegiance and the oath that I said, uh, you know, now that 
the rubber meets the road. I got skin in the game. I don't really want that life. And so he say, pray that he lets me have the box and I get to go home without him. I said, sure, John. You know, the women, these women, all three had this in common. When Jesus Christ and his disciples camped on the hillside, when they traveled, and there was a larger band than simply the 12 disciples, but particularly Jesus Christ and the 12 that attended him, as they traveled from village to village and throughout the hillsides and by Galilee and the, the Lake of Galilee, these three women particularly formed a friendship. I don't know, Scripture doesn't allow us to see all their conversations that they had, but they must have become fast friends because all three of them attended Christ. They cooked meals. They financially supported his ministry. And all three of them were at the cross when he was crucified. And these three girlfriends, on this morning, on Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, went to the store. They picked out the spices, and the, the dealer would have known. He would have said, oh, wow, are you going to be using these to embalm someone? And they said, yes. Well, okay, well, you know, what's going on? Well, you know, that's... Probably, they probably said nothing. But he would have known. He would have known that they would have been going to, to wrap a, a body that was fresh. Little did he know that it was a body that would not have been fresh. It was a body that had already been in the grave. This was the third day. So as they went, they were probably talking and saying, you know, um, we've got to do, it's a three-step process with a lot of little steps in between, Let's see, I know that two of the, the followers would have taken him down and they would have probably hastily wrapped his body and they would have placed him in there. So somebody's got to unwind him. And then somebody, one of the gals would say, okay, I'll be in charge of that. And then somebody said, well, you know what? I will, um, one of the Marys probably said, I will wash the body. You know, I will take and, and the blood and the grime and the, the sweat and the dirt the rust, perhaps, from the nail, or splinters, or, or, or dirt from the wood. I, you know, I will wash that. And then the other one would say, okay, well, then I will begin to lay out the wrappings to, to put in the spices so that we rewrap him again. They're probably all a chatter talking about what they're going to do with a dead body. Fully, fully expecting to find that dead body in that grave. And then it dawns upon them. Who, oh, when we get there, there's going to be, there's going to be a stone over the, the cavern. There's going to be a, you know, it's not just a walk-in tomb. There's going to be, there's going to be a, a roadblock. Oh, what are we going to do? They were probably very close at hand. And they were thinking, you know, it's Sunday morning, the day after Sabbath. There may be someone in the garden. There may be a gardener. And later... One of the Marys will come and he, she will cling to Jesus thinking that he's a gardener. So maybe there'll be some guy around that we can enlist to roll the stone away and then we can get at the body of Christ so loved. Now, as they get close, one particularly, 
Mary would have known a lot about anointing. We don't have exact information, but scholars say, and if you want to um, look to Luke chapter 7, verse 44 through 50, Luke chapter 7, 44 through 50, scholars say that in all likelihood, in Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman, and that's the only name that we're given, a sinful woman comes to a banquet that Jesus Christ is reclining. They didn't have chairs that they would sit around a table. They reclined. And she came to his feet. She perhaps kind of went around the perimeter, the outside of the building, and she, she drew close. History, and I think it's a, I think it's farcical, but the old woodcuts, when they show Mary Magdala, they show her as having hair all the way down to her ankles. She's, she's got these long, these long tresses. Just to indicate that she was the woman who was known simply at this point in time as the sinful woman. We don't know what her sin was. Um, there's another passage that says that the sinful woman or Mary Magdala was one who had seven demons cast out of her. Some scholars believe that it could have been simply sinful practices. In other words, she could have had many, many things in her life. But she was certainly so, so overwhelmed that even she, self, even she herself would look in the mirror and say, I am simply a sinful woman. That's my identity. Then hearing Christ, perhaps his teaching elsewhere, she approaches, and it says in verse 44, that having come and, and anointed his, his feet, she wipes his feet with her hair, and then they begin to judge her, and Christ says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. There is in this woman's mind this, I believe, this function of anointing Christ. She anointed him when he was living, and she is going to be one of the girlfriends that is going to anoint him in his death. And that's her mindset. She is going to anoint the body of Christ in the grave. Now, I've got to leave this, and again, I can't fully explore her character for you, but I think she's someone that a lot of us could identify with because, you see, it's easier to anoint the body of Jesus than it is to worship when you see an empty tomb to worship the risen Lord. It's easier to go prepared to anoint Jesus, to honor Jesus in his death, to, as it were, to memorialize him and to think of all of his wonderful teachings and to think of all of his wonderful uh, healings and to think of all of his miracles and to think of the time that even I was forgiven of my sin, but not to think of him as a reality, not to think there's this splinter in our mind that's like a doubt saying, you know, 
I know that I confess it in the Apostles' Creed. And I know that we sing about him risen. And yes, he's risen, he's risen indeed. But do I really believe that a dead man got up and walked? Because see, that means he's alive right now. That means he is conscious of our life right now. That means that he is approachable right now. And you say, well, of course I believe that. I, I believe that without a doubt. But then we struggle with prayerlessness. We, we struggle with, with praying during the day to him because, you see, you don't pray to a dead body. You don't, I hope you don't go to a graveyard and pray to those deceased loved ones. You pray or you speak to someone who's alive, that you have a relationship with. Here is Mary Magdalene, forgiven much, Forgiven so much that she would she would anoint Christ. She would wash even she didn't feel like she was able to touch him except touch his feet. But now she would say, I have been forgiven much. And I loved him when he was alive. And it will be the this is the last thing I will do. I will anoint him again. And I will love him in death. But will she love him risen? It says there in Mark, it says that. When they saw that the tomb was empty, in verse 5, that they were alarmed. And then when they were told, go to Galilee and there you will see him. In other words, your next action is going to have to be one of faith. Your next action is to go, believe me, when I say he's in Galilee. In other words, you're not going to see Christ in the flesh this morning, but you're asked to follow him. How do you know that Jesus Christ is risen? Just like Mary Magdala, just like Mary, mother of James, and just like Salome, we have words, we have a message that is given to us that says that he was. And just like these three women, we don't see Jesus with our physical eyes. Will we in faith, will we in faith believe it? And not simply believe it intellectually, cognitively, but will I act upon it? Will I speak and live as if he is with me at every moment? Or he's real and he's alive and he's personable. He's relatable, as it were. And secondly, you have Mary, the mother of James. And she's written about in John. And um, she is someone that, again, totally amazes me because it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and I begin with verse 24, and this is at the foot of the cross, that the soldiers said as they looked at his tunic, which was seamless, and it already had been taken off of him. Jesus Christ was very exposed, as it were, upon the cross. Let's not tear it, but let's cast lots or die for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross, in other words, the women standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The women were there watching this, this, these brutal, brutal, cruel men 
who are literally, Christ is there, he's not deceased yet. There's two others that are crucified beside him. The women are watching their Lord pass away and expire. They're watching him excruciating, from which we get excrucis, you know, crucify, the, the agony and the pain of crucifixion. Excruciating pain. And these men are probably laughing, oh, I lost that one, ah, ha, ha. And they making light of men that are dying. These brutal men are right there. And where were the women? Were they at a great distance? No, at a great distance were the men, the disciples. But the women, the women standing beside even the mother of Christ were right there at the cross, right there next to the soldiers gambling. Mary, mother of James, and also Mary, she's known as the wife of Clopas, is someone that I think she would have had seared in her mind as she went to the grave. She would have had seared in her mind the cross. The cross. That no man could have gone through that and come back to life. There was no swoon theory. There was no, there was no almost die, but then in the tomb he came alive again. Intellectually, she would have known that it would have been impossible for him to rise again forgetting that all things are possible with, with God, forgetting that Jesus Christ had, even in the Gospel of Mark, three specific times told his disciples, the larger group of disciples, I must go into Jerusalem, I must be falsely tried, I must be crucified and buried, but on the third day I will come back. What's my point? I can identify with Mary, the mother of James, I can identify with this Mary who focuses on the cross of Christ, who focuses on Christ as the forgiver of my sins, and then minimize, as it were, resurrection. John Calvin said, forbid it, that the cross of Christ and the work of Christ, atoning sacrifice, should ever be preached or taught without it being accompanied by the resurrection. But too many times, I'm like a, a, a friend of mine who had a little boy named David. She, very sadly, the cat had died. They don't know if it was hit by a car or not, but it was in their driveway, and it was just splat cat. And so she thought, oh, David is going to be so upset when he comes home from school. That's his cat. Died. And so she thought, how was she going to explain this? Well, David came home, and Though it was comical when she shared this, she said, I sat him down, Pastor, and I said, David, your cat has died. The cat is dead. And I just want you to know that the cat is, is going to be in heaven with Jesus. And he said, Mom, what does Jesus want with a dead cat? And sometimes... Sometimes, and we don't want to minimize the work of Christ. I should have died there, but he died in my place. That's the, that's the heart, as it was, of Christianity. But it's not the legs and the hands. Because his coming out of the grave, it said, I completely paid the price. You see, a man who was completely innocent can never die. He's totally bulletproof. And you see a man that will 
not be judged to eternal death is a man that has completely satisfied the requirements of God. And then that man comes to me, dirty, sinful man that I am, Mary of Magdalene forgives me all, and my response is to love him. But I have a tendency to focus on his dying for me. Let me try one more time. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. By the water and the blood. Secure for me, secure for me, the double payment. Secure for me not only the forgiveness of sins, but the power to live a new life. Secure for me not only, atone not only for sin's guilt, but atone for sin's power. The cross, the cross justifies me and I have a new life. The resurrection says the same power that caused a dead man, dead corpus and flesh to get up and walk and come to you, it can give you new life. Now as a forgiven creature, you can walk. In other words, I now have the power to resist sin's temptation. I now have a new power at work in me that I never experienced before. Am I using that? Am I availing that? Am I focusing simply on the forgiveness of sin's past and present? Or am I also focusing on the power now, the power to be this man or woman of Christ that he would have me to be? And then finally, if you would look at Solomon. Solomon is uh, listed in, if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 23. And I'm not going to read the scripture this morning. You can read it on your own. But just prior to this, if you were to go to Matthew chapter uh, 20, if you were to look at verse 18 and 19 prior to chapter, uh, prior to verse 20 of Matthew Jesus Christ is given in one of those instances where he says, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there, but I'm going to be raised again because I'm God and I'm going to do that for my people. I love Solomon. She comes. She is given credit here by Matthew as being the woman who comes and says, hey, I've got it. I've got these two boys, James and John. When you come back or when you, when you sit on the throne of God, I want boy number one, James, to sit on one side and I want boy number two, John, to sit on the other side. Jesus does not rebuke her. He doesn't laugh at her. I think that if I were to write the, the drama, he's probably smiling and saying, wow, that's incredible. Some mom, you are so ambitious for your boys, but he doesn't rebuke her. I believe that what she is doing, her very name means peaceful. I believe that she is so full of hope. I believe that she is so thoughtful of this new life. You know, if you come back, if you, if you die for us, and if you're the Messiah, then, then we, we're going to rule and reign with you, and so all of my boys will be right up there with you. They're with you now. Maybe they're even sitting at the campfire beside you, and they're, they're certainly in that intimate circle of James, John, and Peter. So I want them to be with you forever. 
She's already thinking about the new life. But remember, she also was at the cross. She also, as Mark records, was full of fear as she came away from an empty tomb. What was going on? I believe that Salome, as high hopes as she had that Christ was the one, they had been so, so challenged. Her hopes had been so challenged at the cross that she was on the verge of either becoming a cynic or she was already one. You know a cynic. A cynic is one that they don't allow their optimism anymore to, to, to run rampant. They've lost confidence. They look at things like a realist. They look, they're very, she's looking at that empty tomb and she's saying, you know, I don't know what to make of this because I came fully, fully prepared for my life to go on as it has been. Just one tragedy after another. I was coming to the graveyard to prepare a dead body and then go back home for Easter lunch. I was just coming to see Jesus Christ crucified in his dead body and go back with my life as it was. But if he's risen, if he's risen, then my hopes, what are my hopes? My hopes are revived. All of cynicism and all of questioning and, and, and my doubts, they're, they're all removed. And I believe that this was playing out in all three women that now all three of them are challenged. And the final scripture that I would have you to look at so that we can close the case on this is in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, he says that also, he says that they were told this, and in verse 8, and this is chapter 28, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. But Matthew includes great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I, I see at this moment three women when Jesus Christ comes to them, they're in fear. Kenny read earlier Psalm 23. Let me read to you Psalm 23, taking out the good shepherd who we know to be Jesus and his deeds. Let it speak for itself. If there is no living Christ, then this is your psalm. I shall be in want. Me. Me, my soul, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Evil with me, me, me in the presence of my enemies, my head, my cup, me for the days of my life. Jesus Christ comes and he appears to these women. And he says, I am Jesus who you seek. And he puts all their fears of life without him. Yes, they've got a little of Jesus. They've got, they've got time that they've spent with him. They've got the forgiveness of their sins that they're focusing on, and that's great. They've got his death on their behalf, and that's great. 
But life without him in reality is not meant to be lived because it's isolation. It's just a fallen hero. But on the very night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, there was a Passover meal set before him. And he took up the bread and he said, this bread is broken in remembrance of me. So when you eat it, remember me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my shed blood, soon to be shed, only a day away. It represents the forgiveness or the washing away of all of your sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. If that was all that he said, then we have, as many churches celebrate, we have a memorial table. We're remembering what he did for us. Celebrating, yes, his death on our behalf. But he went on further. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death on your behalf until I come again. In other words, it's the end of the beginning, and it's the beginning of the end. And right now, with a living Christ, we await even his second return. And we proclaim him living for us. We proclaim his death, and we proclaim his resurrection power to live the life for him. And he comes to us all. And with this meal, he strengthens us to live without fear. Let us pray as I set aside these elements and invite our elders to come forward. Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would take this bread and you would take this cup and you would use it for holy purposes. I ask that as we would take of this table, that we would recognize that as we raise the cup, that we celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate you risen. We celebrate the power to live and to be free of all the fear, that we don't have fathers, we don't have only ourselves to look to, but we have you by our side, within us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to comfort, to strengthen, to guide, and to form us to be the men and women that you would have us to be. For you're alive. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite our men to come forward to serve you. And what we're going to do this morning is, is that Shane is going to have the bread and the cup, a common cup for you. He's going to have grape juice as an alternative to the wine. Jake is going to have bread and a cup for intinction by which you may dip it. And then I'm going to be off to Jake's right. And that's for the blessing of children, but it's also for just a brief word of prayer should you like to pray this morning. But as you come to your, this table, you're not coming because you're perfect. You're not coming because you've got it all together. You're coming because, as a Christian, baptized in the faith, one who has expressed faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, we're coming with our fears, we're coming with our doubts, we're coming with our struggles, and we're saying, feed me till I want no more. 
feed me and strengthen me to live for you. That's what we're saying. So the table is not perfection. The table's characteristic is hunger. So we invite you now.